0: Let's pray together. In life and death, Lord, we are yours. And we pray that you would indeed abide with us. And so we pray that you would cause us to abide in you. And we ask that by your word, you would enable us to obey the instructions Of these psalmists to bless you, to praise your name, and to hope for the day when the horn will sprout as you have promised it will for David and the king will reign. We ask it in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. There's a novelist named Graham Greene who has written a book called The Power and the Glory, and the book is set at a time in, I think it's Mexico, he never really spells out exactly what country it is, I believe it's Mexico, and a totalitarian government has come in and tried to stamp out Christianity altogether, and the main character of the novel is a priest. He's a priest who survived the executions, somehow he escaped, they, they rounded up the priests, and the ones that wouldn't take a wife and abandon the priesthood, uh, they lined them up against a wall and shot them. And the government is chasing this guy. The government is looking for this guy everywhere. And between his own weakness and the difficulties of the time, he has become an alcoholic. And yet he continues to pursue faithfulness, and his... He's referred to as a whiskey priest. And, and what's remarkable about the novel is that you really come to respect the whiskey priest. He's not just an alcoholic. He's, he's someone who has committed fornication and has a child. And he is so broken and so shamed by his sin and so aware that he's a bad priest and so everybody that he goes to, there, there are all these people that still want to practice Catholicism, even though the t- totalitarian government has tried to stamp it out. And everywhere he goes, they want to, to make their confession to him. And they want him to, to preach God's word, to, to hold a mass for them, to administer communion to, to them. They want him to serve them as a priest. And he keeps telling them, I'm a bad priest. But his badness, his brokenness over his own sin, his, his, his awareness, he says to one lady who's, she has misconceptions about, about holiness, and she thinks that she's complacent about her own holiness, and she has these false ideas about humanity, and, and, and um, he tells her to try to break her out of this complacency, he says they're at the time they're actually imprisoned together in a very cramped cell with all these people crowded in there and he says to her there are moments like right now when i want drink more than god and and he's he's trying to bring out of her this awareness of her own sin the whiskey priest he understands his own sinfulness and he and he says at another point He's reflecting back on his prior life. When he was rich, he was safe, and he, he was relatively innocent. He hadn't yet fornicated and uh, had this child. He hadn't yet become an alcoholic. And he says, he's, he says that he realizes that in his innocence, he loved no one. But now he has learned compassion. The great hope of the Bible, you know, the, the reason I'm telling you this is because We're going to talk about Psalm 133, 134, and 135. I would invite you to to turn there. And in Psalm 133, we're going to read about a priest. And the first commandment given to priests like Aaron was, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the next commandment that he heard was, you shall make no image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. And what did Aaron do? He crafted a golden calf. He broke the commandments. And, and I'm going to suggest that in these, in these three psalms, Psalms 133, 4, and 5, we are going to see a hope for a renewal of the priesthood beyond the judgment, beyond the fall of God's wrath that cut off the line of priests, that brought an end to Israel's worship, and, and a hope that includes the resurrection of the dead, which the, the whiskey priest, he's a fi- fictional character, But he believes, well, real characters like Aaron, who were broken in their sin, repented of their sin, and believed they're going to be raised from the dead and made clean and holy. So I would encourage you to look with me at Psalm 133. As we begin here, let me just draw your attention to the fact that 133 and 134 are the last of the songs of ascent. So you don't see a song of ascent on 135 or any of the rest of the songs. So the songs of ascent are 120 through 124. Uh, Sorry, 120 through 134. Look at 133, a song of ascent of David. David writes, behold how good and pleasant it is, when brothers dwell in unity. Let me invite you to think for a moment about the brothers in the Bible. Think of the first pair of brothers in the Bible, Cain and Abel, they didn't dwell in unity. Think of the ones that come after them featured prominently in the story, Isaac and Ishmael. They didn't dwell in unity. And then Jacob and Esau, no unity there. Joseph's brothers, nope, no unity. David's own brothers were not happy to see him, spoke harshly to him when he came out to check on them sent by their father. David's sons, no unity. Absalom murders Amnon. Adonijah tries to steal the kingdom from from Solomon. No unity among those brothers. Psalm 133 verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I think that the psalmist is looking forward to a better day, a day when brothers will dwell in unity. And I would suggest to you that brotherly love is something that will mark the age to come, and when it is attained in the present, so it's a, it's a characteristic of the future, when it's enjoyed in the present, when it's genuine, when you have real brotherly love, it's an anticipation It's a a present experience of a future reality. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then the rest of the psalm, verses 2 and 3, give us two similes. They tell us what this, the psalmist David, he tells us what this brotherly love is like. The first simile has to do with the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. Look at verse 2. Brothers dwelling in unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. In the Pentateuch, the two things that were to be anointed were the tabernacle and the, and the priests. And this, David is envisioning a scene where Aaron is anointed. And he says the joy of that scene, the gladness of that scene, the And I think David is anticipating a time when the priests will be anointed anew. Because David read Moses, David read the passage that that we read earlier in the service about how Israel was going to break the covenant and be driven into exile, but not totally destroyed, and then that the Lord would have compassion on them when he saw that their strength was gone. David knew that passage, and I think David is saying, a day is coming that's not like right now. A day is coming when brothers are going to dwell in unity. And that day is going to be like the anointing of Aaron, the high priest, which also suggests, I think, that David knew that the temple was going to be destroyed. David knew that the line of the priests was going to get cut off. And he's expecting, just like we saw in 132.17, where a horn sprouts for David, a new king arises for David, he's expecting also a new priest is going to arise. And then verse 3. So the first image is the anointing of the high priest. The second image is like water on the land, the land of promise. Brothers dwelling in unity, verse 3, is like the dew of Hermon, which falls or runs down. Same term that we had running down on the beard in verse 2, running down on the collar of the robes. The the dew of Hermon running down on the mountains of Zion. So, So this is a picture of the land of promise Under the blessing of God. This is a picture of a well-watered land where an anointed priest ministers the knowledge of God to the people of God. That's what it's like when brothers dwell in unity. For there, the end of verse 3, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Where? In the land of promise. In Zion, where the dew of Hermon runs down. There, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This this too makes me think that David is looking forward to everlasting life. He's looking forward to the time when life will triumph over death. How does this get fulfilled? Well, one arose who, as the author of Hebrews explains to us, took up a priesthood that went further back than the priesthood of Aaron. The author of Hebrews explains how Jesus arose as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, something that David also prophesies about in Psalm 110, right? So I think these are connected things. I think David is looking forward for the fulfillment of the Aaronic priesthood in the future priest according to the the order of Melchizedek that priest arises and his order, his priesthood is more significant than Aaron's because, as you remember, if you remember the, the argument of the author of Hebrews, um, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham and, the, and the, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So that's his argument that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron and therefore greater than the Aaronic line of priesthood and so the 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 expected renewal of the Aaronic line is fulfilled by the rise of the priest after the order of Melchizedek. The hope for a rebuilt temple is likewise fulfilled in the realization of what the temple itself symbolizes, the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. And the land will always have the water it needs, and the children of God will be brothers. And there, the brothers will dwell in unity. Application point from uh, Psalm 133. I'm going to let Peter give us the application. I'm just going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Listen to what he says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, From a pure heart. There it is. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So love one another. And then listen to what Peter goes on to say. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So I want to say this about this point of application. Brotherly love is empowered by the new covenant, and it anticipates the age to come. Brotherly love is empowered by the new covenant and you get into the new covenant by means of the new birth. So I want you to hear very clearly what I'm saying here Um, and and to try to illustrate this, I want to tell you a story. Uh, We used to live in Houston and uh, maybe you've heard me tell this story before. We went one night to this really cool church, really cool church. It's one of those churches that's in an art gallery you know, one of those churches that ordinary people like me, you walk into and you think, eh, maybe, I'm, maybe this is not the right place for me, you know? <laughs> I'm not as cool as any of these people in this room, and I kind of feel out of place. This place was really, really cool. And, um, and the preacher said, we need to stop worrying about what's right, and we need to start loving people. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't explain to anybody in the room why they're not loving You understand what I'm saying? He says, stop worrying about what's right and start loving people. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? Because I, I know that I don't naturally feel love for people. Not only did he not explain why you don't love people, he also did not explain how you become somebody who loves other people. So listen again to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Having been born again. Love one another earnestly from the heart, having been born again. Why do you need to be born again? Because you're dead in your sin. That's why people don't love others. We have this, we have this spiritual deadness in us, and we don't love people. We just love ourselves. And even after the new birth, we need to be told, love one another earnestly. Because the new birth doesn't all of a sudden renew us completely and totally and finally where we never again feel any sinful or selfish impulse. So if you want to become somebody that's loving and you're not a Christian, you must be born again. You've got to experience the new birth. And if that happens to you, you will find new impulses welling up in you and you will experience the goodness and the pleasantness of brothers dwelling together in unity if you say to me, how do, I, how do I experience this new birth? I'm just going to quote to you Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, if you feel in yourself, I don't love people. You need to call on the name of the Lord. And he can put love for others into your heart. Psalm 134. A song of ascents. And look at the opening words here. Come bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Uh, Only priests could enter into the house of the Lord. So I think we've got a connection between Psalm 133 and Psalm 134 because you have the anointing of the priests in 134, and then you have them addressed standing in the house of the Lord. I think think the, the psalmist is addressing the priests in Psalm 134, because only the priests could enter into the temple. So come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And then he tells them in verse two, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. There's the command to the priests. He's urging the priests to bless the Lord. And then out of the blessing of the Lord that the priests do, verse 3, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So the priests are going to bless the Lord, and the Lord is going to bless the people from Zion, who made he who made heaven and earth. Now I want to step back for just a second from Psalm 134, and think with you for just a moment about the songs of ascent before we, before we go on from this psalm. So um, let me draw your attention just briefly back to Psalm 120 and look at verse 5 where he says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. So in Psalm 120, you got this guy, this psalmist, who is in Meshach. And if, you're familiar, if you were here when we, went over, when we went through this or you're really familiar with the Bible, you may remember that Meshach is where Gog of Magog reigns in Ezekiel 38. It's a bad place with a wicked ruler. So he's outside the land of Israel in, in, a, in a pagan land. That's where it starts. It ends with the priests in the temple. So I want to suggest to you that there's a movement from Psalm 120 from exile to return from exile and a a renewed experience of the presence of God. And then right in the middle of these 14 songs of ascent is Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house. And we talked about how the house is both... uh, the, the temple and the house of David. So the Lord's gonna, he's gonna rebuild the temple, he's gonna rebuild the line of David, and then he's gonna keep the city like Adam was supposed to keep the garden. And then on either side of Psalm 127, 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. So you got restored fortunes before. 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. So it's like there's, there's this build up to 127, and then this blessing that flows out from there. And, and there are similar correspondences with all these psalms. And it all culminates, it's all building toward and culminating in the, the horn sprouting from, for David in 132.17, the, the, the blessed unity, which is like an anointed priest in 133, and water on the land, and then the priests in the temple being summoned to bless the Lord. What does this mean for us today? Well, uh, Paul says to the church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Peter says to the church that God has made us to be a kingdom and priests. So if the priests in Psalm 134 are being urged, bless the Lord, the fulfillment of that is the psalmist now speaking to the priests, those who believe, and there's your point of application. There's your command from the psalmist. Bless the Lord, you priests. So the psalmist is commanding us to bless the Lord because the return from exile has been inaugurated and the covenant, the new covenant, has been, uh, it's been made, it's been put in place. And God's dwelling place is being built up as the church is being built and Jesus has made us to be his kingdom and his priesthood. And so if you say to me, well, how am I supposed to bless the Lord? I would just commend to your attention 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18, where Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. There you go. That's how you bless the Lord. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And that brings us to Psalm 135. the The Psalms are amazing, and and the the, the sort of superstructure of the Psalter is incredible, uh, and and Psalm 135 is is beautiful and intriguing. And um, to be honest, you know, if if you think of the Psalter as like a a piece of architecture, uh, where I feel like somebody that's that's staring at a particular Formation and trying to figure out what's going on, and I don't feel like I've unlocked what's what's happening here yet. But I'm in good company because Augustine said basically the same thing. Augustine said about the Psalter, he said there's got to be some kind of arrangement here, but I don't have it figured out yet. So, so that's that's how I feel about Psalm 135. And the reason I say that is because of the way that it. It recapitulates statements from Psalm 115, and and we'll see this as we work through it. You may remember from Psalms 111 through 117 that you had a whole bunch of praise the Lord statements. Hallelujah really is what the text says, and that's resumed here in Psalm 135. Look at the first word or first statement in 135, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's hallelujah, and then look at the last word of this psalm. At the end of verse 21, praise the Lord. Again, hallelujah. So it's almost like Psalm 135 is, is resuming those hallelujahs from 111 through 117. And then in particular, 135 is going to repeat a number of statements from 115. So let's, let's work through Psalm 135 together. Look at verses 1 through 3 here. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. Hallel being a command that means praise, right? Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. Praise the name of the Lord. So he says it once, praise the Lord. Then he says it again, inserting the word name. And then he says, give praise, O servants of the Lord. Notice how that links us with 134.1. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Look at verse 2 of 135. Who stand in the house of Of the Lord. That's just what we had in 134.1. Who stand by night in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. 135.2. Verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. 133.1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Sing to the name of the Lord, for it is pleasant. I think to, to get a feel for what the psalmist is saying here, when he says, Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. We should, especially in light of what he's, what he's going to say, we should contrast the name of the Lord with a name like Molech. You remember that name? Molech is that pagan deity in ancient Israel that people sacrificed their infant children to. They took their babies and they slaughtered them on altars in homage to Molech. So the name of Molech is an abomination. The name of Molech is a name that calls up grief and shame and pain and remorse and death. And it is as negative as the name of Yahweh is good. This is why the psalmist asserts praise the Lord here in verse 3 for the Lord is good. He's not like Molech, he's good. So, so we have this opening call to praise in verses 1 through 3. This is not hard to apply. Obey it. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything good, give thanks, because he's good. He's worthy. He's not like Molech. And then in verses 4 and 5, um, the psalmist is going to do two things that are, that are really interesting. The first thing he's going to do in verse four is, in a, is he's going to talk about the choice or the election. He's going to talk about God's choosing of Israel. And then the second thing he's going to do in verse five is talk about how Yahweh is greater above all gods, greater than all the other gods. Okay, so there's a twofold thing here. The Lord chose Israel and he's greater than all of the other gods. Look at what he says in verse four. And notice the word For at the beginning of verse four. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself. This is why you praise. We don't respond to election by saying, well, this is somehow not right. God chose me, He didn't choose other people. No. You respond to election with praise God. Praise God. You see, you see the flow of thought there in the Psalm? Praise the Lord. For, verse 4, the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself. Israel as his own possession. Uh, you may remember that Denny, in the cult of worship, read that word in Exodus 19.5. It's also this, this choosing of Israel as, as the Lord's special possession. It's in a number of places. I just want to read you a couple of statements in Deuteronomy. So listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse, verse 6 and following. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Same terminology, chose possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he explains, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then listen to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Why does he tell them that? Because that's what the other gods require. Do you remember that scene with Elijah on Mount Carmel and those, those pagan priests are cutting themselves? Yahweh is good. He doesn't call his people to cut themselves. So Israel shouldn't do it. Verse 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you To be a people for his treasured possession. So so you hear the the choice and then the treasured possession repeated in these texts. And in Deuteronomy 14, implicitly, Yahweh is better than these gods who call their people to cut themselves. And then look at Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. So this is significant, that we've got election and Yahweh's greatness over all other gods in verse 5. Why do I say that's significant? Well, right after this, in verses 6 and 7, the psalmist is going to talk about creation. He's going to talk about God's power in all creation. And it's, it's really interesting to me that the psalmist first talks about God's choice of Israel, and then he talks about God's creation of the world. I mean, it's almost like he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Texts like these stand behind these Pauline formulations in the New Testament. Look at verse 6. The psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Sound familiar? Psalm 115, verse 3, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. This is the same language. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And then verse 7, it is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth wind from his storehouses. You see how he's, he's talking about all these different features of creation, A lot of it having to do with with wind and rain and lightning that accompanies it. The the clouds rising, the vapors rising from the ends of the earth, the lightnings. God does all of this. The psalmist here is asserting, verse 5, Yahweh's above all gods. And then he goes into the details. And essentially what he's saying is something like this. Don't think that Baal is Lord up there over the storm clouds. Don't think that that there's some Zeus up there in the storm clouds. Don't think that Yom or Poseidon rules over the seas. And certainly don't think that Sheol or Hades is lord of the underworld. No, every place where those deities lay claim to things that Yahweh created, Yahweh reigns. Those deities are nothing before him. And because he's creator... There is no God that can keep him from accomplishing his purposes. Look at verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. So he's talking about the exodus now. He goes from election, Yahweh's greatness over all other gods, to creation, and now he's moving into the exodus for two verses. And it's interesting here that it's almost like the psalmist is saying Pharaoh couldn't keep his firstborn son alive. He's certainly not going to be able to keep Yahweh's people captive. And and this teaches us about the character of, of God, doesn't it? God is the kind of God who chooses a tribe or a family or a nation that is enslaved as his people. That's the kind of God the God of the Bible is. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. The Lord liberated his people from Egypt, and he killed those who stood in their way. And then he moves from the Exodus in verses 8 and 9 to the conquest in verses 10 and 11. Look what he says in verse 10 who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. Not only did the Lord liberate his people from Egypt, he's cleared the land of of the people who were waging war on him and on his purposes. This land that they thought they owned, land that Yahweh created for his glory, land that they used for their sin. He took it back from them and gave it to his people as their inheritance, as we read here in verse 12, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. And then in all of this, in the Exodus from Egypt, you remember what the Lord said to Pharaoh, In in Exodus chapter 9, he says to him, For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it works. It works so effectively that a prostitute who is not getting intelligence briefings, a, a prostitute 40 years later in Jericho knows the whole story about what Yahweh did to Pharaoh down in Egypt. And and when those spies come to her, she said, hey, we heard all about what your God did. And when we saw you coming, our hearts melted within us. This is why verse 13 says, your name, O Yahweh, endures forever. Your renown, O Yahweh, throughout all ages. So look at what the psalmist has done here in verses four through uh, 13. He's just walked through... God's choice of his election of Israel, and then the exodus from Egypt, and then the conquest of the land, and then the giving of the land, and the establishment of Yahweh's name. Now, he's assuming the story that he do- the, the other parts of the story that he doesn't also include. And, and the other parts of the story are about to be evoked by a quotation. It's it's a quotation from the passage that Dustin read earlier in the service. Earlier in the service, we read another poetic summary of the history of Israel before it even took place. Deuteronomy 32, Moses says to Israel, he says, I'm going to teach you a song. And this song is gonna tell you what's gonna to happen to you. And as you sing this song through your generations, the song is gonna to testify to you. And he basically says to them in the song, look at how loving and God has look at how loving and gracious God has been to you. He, he, he delivered you, he rescued you, he provided for you. And what did you do? You grew fat and kicked. You rebelled against him. And so, in response, the Lord says, You made me jealous with your idols. So I'm going to make you jealous with this group of people that's no people at all, Gentiles. This is exactly what Paul is alluding to in in Romans 11 when he says, inasmuch as I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles, I do so to make the Jews jealous. Paul is thinking of that passage, living out that passage. And then the Lord says later in Deuteronomy 32, he says, I would have said, I will cut them off, wipe them from human memory. Had not I feared provocation from the enemy? If the enemy, and I would have done this if the enemy wouldn't say, it was not Yahweh that did this, it was our hand that did it. So the Lord is saying, I'm not going to wipe Israel out completely. And then you get down to Deuteronomy 32 verse 36 and Moses says this, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. But notice where that statement sits in the flow of thought. They've been brought into the land, they've broken the covenant, they've been exiled from the land, but not totally destroyed, and the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Implication, new exodus, return from exile, restoration of all good things. Look at Psalm 135, verse 14. I read this verse and I think to myself, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not just seeing things in the Bible. I'm not just reading in what I want to find. Look at what the psalmist is doing. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32 verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. It is verbatim, word for word from Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 36. It's like the psalmist is saying, that's where you plug this in on the storyline. This is where this psalm fits. We're talking about the new exodus and the return from exile and the restoration of all things. And then the next verse in Deuteronomy 32, the very next verse, after he has said that, he's, that the Lord is going to vindicate his people, have compassion on his servants, look at verse 37. Then he will say, where are their gods, these idols that they worshipped? Look at what the psalmist does in Psalm 135. He starts sounding, He starts quoting... Psalm 115, he's taunting them, mocking them. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands, man-made, malleable metals. That's all they are. That's it. They have mouths, but do not speak. They don't reveal the truth. You won't hear anything from them. They have eyes, but do not see. Those idols... I know we don't bow down before statues in this culture, but we can put in here money, sex, power, influence. Those things are not going to see your distress. Those things are not going to declare the truth to you. They have ears, but do not hear. I mean, I don't know what you want to visualize. Your credit card, maybe a bill. It has no ears to hear your prayers. It is not worthy of your devotion. nor is there any breath in their mouths. The Lord, you remember, you remember Psalm 18, quoting Exodus 15? By the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he parted the Red Seas. I mean, I know it's figuratively speaking, right? The Lord doesn't have nostrils, and he didn't part the Red Seas by blowing. That's okay, that's okay. Contrast it with the idols. There's no breath in them. They're dead. They can do nothing for you. They are non living. They are unresponsive. They are non revelatory. They're dead. And then look at what he says in verse 18 those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make and trust idols, they will be dead, unresponsive, implacable, just like their idols. Unintreatable and no help to anyone. And so again, it sounds like Psalm 115 in verse 19 and following. You remember Psalm 115 where he went through the houses? O oh, house of Israel, O oh, house of Aaron, O oh, oh, you who fear the Lord. He goes through these lists. Look at what he does here in verses 19 and 20. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. That quotation of Deuteronomy 32 verse 36 in Psalm 135 verse 14 ties the message of all of book five of the Psalter firmly to the eschatological hope, the end-time hope of Israel, the vindication and compassion that Deuteronomy 32, 36 describes and promises to Israel. Also, the rehearsal of the Lord's choice of Israel anticipates those who are chosen from all nations. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The, The celebration of the Lord's work in creation... Of the Lord pleases, he does, verse 6, in heaven above and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. The celebration of the Lord's work in creation is going to be answered by the Lord's work in the new creation. The exodus from Egypt, he it was, verse 8, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That looks forward to what Jesus is discussing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses. And and the Gospel of Luke says, literally it says, he was discussing the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So the exodus from Egypt looks forward to the exodus that Jesus accomplished in Jerusalem. The conquest of the land that we read about here in verse 10, who struck down many nations and mighty killed mighty kings. That anticipates the coming of the champion on the white horse that you can read about in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21. The inheritance of Israel, right? Verse 13, he gave their land as an inheritance or a heritage. That's going to be fulfilled in the inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that is kept in heaven for you. All Israel will be saved when the deliverer comes from Zion. To banish ungodliness from Jacob. The Lord will have compassion on his people and he will bring them into this new covenant where they will have forgiveness for all their sins. And Jesus will lose none of his sheep, both of the house of Israel and those who are not of that sheepfold. And even people who identify with a whiskey priest will rise one day, cleansed and purified and made new, and ready to bless the Lord forever. So I would urge you, if you're a believer in Jesus, from verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 135, obey the call to praise. From verses 4 through 13, where he narrates the history of Israel, I would say this, know your history so that you can interpret your present and know your future. Because what God has done in the past is a preview of what he's going to do in the present, and in the future. And then from verses 14 through 21, bless the Lord, not idols. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you do good. And Lord, we ask that you would so work in our hearts that we want to bless you every moment. Lord, help us to know your goodness, and help us to contrast it with the wickedness of the gods. Help us to deny the false claims of the gods. And Lord, cause your word to break the the claims that those gods lay on us. Break us free, we pray, from greed and lust and impurity and every form of idolatry. And make us those who will stand one day in a new Jerusalem that is like a new Eden and a new Holy of Holies. And bless you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.